HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. Food has long been a national symbol, an identifier of places, cultures, people. And it seems everyone has their own idea of which dish of food best represents their own country or one that they've visited and have come to know. But it's not so simple or straightforward. In her new book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home, award-winning writer Anya von Bremsen explores six of the world's most fascinating and iconic culinary cultures, France, Italy, Japan, Spain, Mexico, and Turkey. And through the web of food, history, and politics, explains their national dishes. Anya is one of the most accomplished food writers of her generation, the winner of three James Beard Awards, contributing writer at Afar Magazine, and the author of six acclaimed cookbooks, among them The New Spanish Table, The Greatest Dishes, Around the World in 80 Recipes, and Please to Table, the Russian cookbook co-authored with John Welchman. Her memoir, for which she was on this show years, a few years ago, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, has been translated into 19 languages. Anya has written for Food and Wine, Sever, The New Yorker, and foreign policy magazines, among other publications. And when she's not on the road, Anya divides her time between New York and Istanbul, which I guess kind of means you're still on the road. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome, Anya. <laughs> Thank you so much, Linda. Great to be here again. Well, it is certain, this, this book, um, as we were talking before the show, I thoroughly enjoyed this book as both a a history, a tome of, of history, facts and explorations and, and research, but also this novel of, of people, of, of characters and of your involvement. I mean, I, you drew such, you wrote such descriptive paragraphs. I could see you standing in the middle of a, of a, you know, a cornfield or, you know, a, a garden or a pizza parlor. I mean, you really inserted yourself into into the whole thing. And I, I love that. Thanks so much. 
Well, this is also kind of a dream project. I mean, a tour of world cuisine. How you've traveled extensively anyway, but how how long did you really spend with us? Lots of different trips that you sort of put together, you know, your your ideas of, of foods? Well, it's based on so much of my past experience mm-hmm. in these countries, in, in France, Italy, Japan, Tokyo, where I've spent a lot of time, Istanbul, where I have a home, Spain, Seville, which I've written a cookbook about. Um, so I wanted to zero in on places, uh, Mexico as well. I wanted to explore in further detail places that uh I wasn't a total ignoramus about. I mean, right. people ask me, how, do you, how did you choose these six countries? You know, because the world is so big and every country has its important and symbolic national dish. But I kind of wanted to start with a base of knowledge and a base of connection, a personal connection to a place. Uh, so that, that was the beginning. And then it sort of followed logically. The idea behind this book was to look uh, at national histories, uh, nation building, national policies, through the lens of food and through the lens of some of the iconic and really well-known and in in some cases, extremely globalized dishes. Mm -hmm. So I start in Paris because Paris is where the whole kind of national conversation about food begins Um, because we we forget that nation is a very new concept. It it kind of didn't really exist before the Enlightenment, right? You had kingdoms, you had empires, but the whole idea of a nation, a sovereign state uh, with a constitution representing the people, the unified language, it's a fairly new concept and it sort of started in France. And France was the first country that really initiated a conversation about food uh, that was really national, that that kind of placed cuisine as part of its... uh, gastro diplomacy as we say now as a soft power and it goes back to you know 18th and 19th century right so and in 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 paris i uh my national dish is pot a feu which is pot on the fire you know the kind of emblematic boiled dinner of uh, france which you know french writers and intellectuals and politicians elevated uh very consciously into the status of a national dish uh, that represents kind of egalité, fraternité, liberté, you know, something that's supposedly accessible for all, meat, broth, vegetables, all in one pot. Um, and the problem that I found in a city like Paris, which is a totally globalized city at this point, that no one really cares. <laughs> and, you know, so this is, I come up against this first issue of how do these national cuisines and national self-identification fear in the age of globalization, in a city like Paris, where everyone wants to tell me about the trendiest Baoban place or a mezcal bar, and everyone is just going on about the chocolate babka, you know, exactly the yeah. kind of things you find in Brooklyn. Well, the world has certainly become a smaller place in terms of it, you know, that the, the food has traveled, and food is one of the first things that travels um, with, exactly. with with tourists. And and then also, I you know, I was, it was interesting to see that you start out with such a humble dish in a country that is not known for humble cuisine. And, uh, but it, yeah, it does have that, that political uh, ring to it that they are, are um, putting forth egalité and fraternité. And, and, but uh, it's one of these misconceptions that pot and Bourguignon and uh, all these dishes were somehow peasant dishes. 
uh, as we know from like real historians, like Eugene Weber, for instance, who wrote this book, Peasants into Frenchmen, about how the Third Empire nationalized the French masses. Peasants never ate meat. Uh, right. If they had like a piece of bacon once a year, that was you know a great achievement. Um, so potafer was let's say a bourgeois dish, mm-hmm. uh, ne- never never poor people's dish. Right. Anyway, so I discovered you know so I brush against this kind of huge wave of globalization, and from there I go to Naples. And what do we want from Naples? Of course, pizza. Uh, which is where it was born, which is where the crust first made, met tomato and cheese around 1760s. And I'm also looking at pasta al pomodoro, uh, pasta with tomato sauce, which again happens in Naples for the first time because it's a city where the tomato really gets diffused. So I examine all these different mythologies and lore um, about pizza and pasta and how these dishes got nationalized, which is not an obvious process either no it's not especially since italy being one of the newer nations uh newer what 1871 i mean it's how to choose a dish who's you know who who which dish is going to be a national dish considering that the cuisines are not hardly unified except i mean yes today there's pizza from north to south and east to west but um but that was not, you know, that was not always so for such a long time. Not at all. And pizza, as I was even shocked to discover, was a peculiarly Neapolitan specialty. So much so that even at the end of the 19th century, local Neapolitan writers had to explain it, what pizza was to the northerners. And northern Italians either didn't know it or they were disgusted by it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was like this whole kind of slightly racially tainted attitude towards the South as Africa and pizza as being filthy and the food of the poor people, which it was because Naples was a spectacularly overcrowded city in the 19th century, 10 times the urban density of Victorian London. So pizza was, you know, as one Neapolitan writer said, a pronto soccorso della stomaco, which means first aid (laughs) of the stomach. So arguably it really got popular and globalized with the immigrants that fled uh, Italy after the unification with its chaos and poverty that it brought on. So you could argue, and it has been argued by historians, that it first really took off as an Italian national icon abroad in exile in diaspora, and then kind of this notion was returned back to Italy. Which happens with a, a lot of different dishes, you know, that, that it does happen that way. And I know that, you know, you're, you, I read the book, so I know that you tried to talk and, and the people talked otherwise, that it stayed and it, and it was established there in, in Naples. But as widespread as it became, yes, it had a lot of help from, from uh, people abroad. Well, and the war, uh, you know, soldiers going back to, to their homeland and saying, ah, oh, this was wonderful and opening pizzerias. Exactly, I, exactly. I did do a lot of research on that for an article I wrote for... Uh, Pizza is just this endlessly fascinating, it fascinating is. It, subject. It is. And it continues to be. People are continuing to look at the the you know, the little pizza ovens that are have boomed on the market. Everyone wants to be a pizzaiola, you know. Or a row. <laughs> <laughs> right. But how much so and you can go on to, to name all the other dishes and and if you're on a roll on that and you want to do that, go ahead. And then we can go back to certain sure. things. Okay. Because I wanted to know how much do indigenous ingredients play into the national dish 
or how does a certain dish get chosen? Um, you know, to express a country's identity. I mean, a lot of people complained about pizza and pasta as being Italy's identity, but but they can't deny it, right? <laughs> Not at this point. This no. point is really undeniable. And, you know, what's amazing is that they've actually managed to fly the Italian flag over, you know, this, like, you know, extremely globalized specialties where, uh, you know, other nations arguably have lost that kind of uh, autonomy and, and the connection. Uh, and uh, their dishes kind of went global without without really representing the country. And there's a lot of work and effort on parts of different governments that goes into maintaining this identity. And the Italians were very smart. They they really kind of kept contact with the with the diaspora in the early 20th century. They established Dante Alighieri societies mm-hmm. where Italian diaspora Italians who might have spoken Calabrian or Neapolitan would learn the new standard Italian, Florentine Italian. Uh, you know, there were trade organizations uh, that kind of safeguarded, you know, the Italianness of certain exports. Uh, so, so yeah, there was a lot of back and forth, in fact, between immigrants and um, and and the Bel Paese and the, and the home country. Whereas with Chinese, for instance, the China completely abandoned this immigrant. You know, didn't didn't. So you you got this kind of Chinese American cuisine hybrid. Uh, that is result is a result of that. Hmm. Interesting, and and then it goes from you know uh, Chinese to you know the Japanese. And uh, I was interested to read that when you got to Tokyo, which you said you've spent a lot of time there in the past. When you got to Tokyo, uh, you had just come from an extensive trip in Southeast Asia. Um, yes, and that I mean. There, there you could have done something in Southeast Asia, but then that's so many different cultures influencing those cuisines. So I think these six cuisines that you chose um, really are some of the one, I can't say pure, no cuisine is pure, but they are more or less unadulterated by you know, close neighbors in a certain way. Do you feel that? Other, well, other than Turkey. Well, I think ramen, which is one of the dishes in my book that I pay so much attention to, is sort of refused that because it's it's a Chinese mm, dish, essentially yeah. Chi- Chinese noodles, lam yan, uh, that were popular in the Japanese treaty ports uh, at the end of the 19th century, and then eventually the dish gets nationalized. Why? Because ramen is such a fuel for uh, post-war reconstruction of Japan. Like all the workers, all the people kind of working on you know, rebuilding the country are eating ramen because like pizza, it's a cheap carb, it's filling, it can be fun if you add different toppings. And so kind of it, it became this like honorary, honorary citizen of Japan and honorary national dish. And then of <laughs> course in the 50s, Momofuku Ando, who it needs to be noted is Taiwanese, right? Uh, invents <laughs> instant ramen and Japanese considered it the greatest invention oh, of the country. So you, it's like something that's completely borrowed, but that gets elevated in, in given this iconic national status because really of its service to the nation. Isn't this like an incredible situation? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's not, you know, I, I think probably some Japanese probably might, you know, have their feathers ruffled a little bit on that, but 
it is it just took over the it took over the world really as far as you know popularity much and like pizza the original term for ramen was quite racist shina soba which means kind of chink you know chink noodles <laughs> which they re- later replaced with uh, another term and then later with ramen so yeah its origins are not are not quite uh are quite tangled and quite complicated as with mm. pizza which was denigrated by the northerners so you have yeah. all this like poor man's starches that are such genius inventions are so delicious and so adaptable and so easily globalized. They just became, you know, become these global citizens and representing globalization, but at the same time, part of the national brand. Right. Well, and then of course, you have something like mole, which is, you know, that is, we're talking Uber indigenous. Um, well, a little Hispaniola in there too, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how talk about UNESCO and and how UNESCO figures into uh, the whole political part of who gets which dish chosen for the national you know heritage list. So yeah, UNESCO established. Uh, I think it was in the early aughts, intangible cultural heritage index uh, with good intentions ostensibly to decolonize heritage and food didn't really figure into it uh until 2010 it was more like folkloric dancing and, mm-hmm. and different uh, rituals uh but food obviously is you know the ultimate intangible heritage because it, it, it's just so fluid so they added food and the first country to receive the nod was France in 2010, the gastronomic meal of the French, along with Mexico. And then they started adding all these different dishes and giving them to different countries while being careful to say, well, we're not saying that this is exclusive to this country, but because food is such a huge part of every country's commercial brand right now, uh, and there's just so much fighting about cultural property, mm-hmm. um, which is ridiculous because if you consider the current borders of so many countries didn't exist until the 20th century um, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So, and there it goes. Every every year there's some kind of new uproar. For instance, they gave dolma, uh, stuffed uh, grape leaves, to Azerbaijan. Uh, hmm. So, of course, Turkey and especially Armenia, which is currently Azerbaijan's mortal enemy, uh, mm-hmm. gets extremely upset. Then they give a lavash to Armenia. Uh, then they give keshkek, which is a wheat stew, to Turkey, and then Armenians get upset. So uh, I think I think there's a kind of lack of, uh, I should say, cultural sensitivity and, and a lack, lack of awareness of how much that kind of plays into the commercialization and branding and promotion of countries as brands, uh, so it's uh, or maybe they do it to create controversy. I, I don't. I mean, look at the the hummus wars. You know, back they were that was um, everybody was claiming the ownership of hummus. And basically, and- what's happening right now is food is serving as proxy for larger conflicts. We're uh-huh. talking about larger conflicts, and when we talk about the hummus war, you know, we're really talking about the situation between. Uh, Israel and Palestine. Right. And I feel like that's what we should really be talking about rather than, you know, going into, you know, dolma or hummus. Uh, yes. I mean, food is very important and it represents uh, so many different things, but uh, there, there's all these kind of lingering conflicts. And the best example 
And it's where I end my book. The epilogue to my book is, of course, Borsch. Mm, yes. No tea at the end. Um, and for the epilogue of my book, I originally planned to have a Thanksgiving in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is this dizzyingly multicultural neighborhood where I live. Um, but then the war happened. Uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, and I was born in Russia, and I'm a Russian speaker, you know, even though I consider myself a Russian-speaking Jew, you know, living in the States, but there are still these deep associations with Russia. I ate borscht as a kid. When the war started, I had a pot of borscht made by my mom in my fridge, and suddenly, you know, like this issue of who owns a dish, because both Russia and Ukraine dispute borscht. Uh, and of course, it belongs to Ukraine. I mean, no question about that, but Russians, Russians are make, making nasty statements of this Russian dish. So who owns dish? Who or you can own a dish? You know, that question I felt kind of landed on my own dinner table All right. uh, with just this visceral, incredible intensity. And it was a trivial thought, you know, who thinks about soup when the war is breaking up? But, you know, Ukrainians did think about it. It's such an important cultural symbol. So in the end of the book, I go through this kind of process of self-decolonization, of sort of renouncing my Russian uh, past and my heritage, because I just, I, I'm embarrassed of it. I don't want to be even thinking in Russian anymore, the language of this horrible aggression. Um, and I start reading and researching Borsh in Ukrainian, which is a language that's very close, but it still takes takes. Uh, effort to learn. And this is how, how the book ends, you know, with, uh, a, it was a beautiful, beautiful tribute to, uh, to you, your feelings to the two nations and, and the food. Yeah. And, and these feelings are complicated and food is complicated. We have this benevolent notion that, Oh, let's just share hummus and there'll be you no, know, no conflicts between Israelis and Palestinians. And you know that, Oh, let's just all eat borscht together. And at some point, I ask a Ukrainian who's a Ukrainian researcher, Avrora Agarodnik, I ask her, do you think Russians and Ukrainians will ever eat borscht together? And she kind of shrugs it off, like, you know, we're not thinking about this at the moment. But then she poses and says, well, you know, not until uh, generation passes uh, and the, the children of the Ukrainians who win this war and the Russians who lose this war are ready to talk to each other again. So oh, it's going to be a generation. Well, you have a, a uh, you wrote about a friend in a uh, Kurdish friend in Istanbul who brought uh, a dish to a you know, party. And he uh, you have a quote in there from him on defining cultural heritage. He said, there are no nations in foods only geographies. And, and I thought that was, that was really a very terrific quote, especially for this, for all of the dishes that you're writing, that there are so many borders, you know, that are, that are, (laughs) that are sort of, they're here one day and gone another day and they expand, they contract, or they, you know, they, they cross over. And, you know, you're talking about food, uh, ingredients from a particular area and that area might span a couple different countries and it's it's oh, a region a region might span you know because people say well there are no national cuisines but there are regional cuisines look at the basque region divided between spain and france spain and france look right. at catalonia divided between spain and france look at alsace used to be german and is now french so all these constructions you know regions nations they're all incredibly artificial Mm-hmm. And they're all quite late, 
you know, they formed quite late. Uh, and, you know, the identifications were different before then. People identified with their ethnicity, with their religion, with their tribe. It was all quite different. But at the same time, as I argue in National Dish, nations do exist and borders do exist. And, uh, you know, nations brand themselves and promote themselves and they fight over heritage or over whose dish is it. So we can't ignore that fact either. And we have to deal with it somehow. Yeah. And um, mo- a lot of my journey is understanding as, uh, of how different people internalize these borders and internalize uh, these national identities and how they might change. You know, yesterday I was Russian and now I, don't lo- I no longer want to be Russian. Well, as, as it's fluid and have to know through it's through no fault of yours. Yeah. So, you know, that's and your mother was raised in the Ukraine. So, I mean, you know. yeah, uh, back to UNESCO and how how they put these dishes on on a list. I mean, there's uh, governments um, and and different interest groups. They can lobby to have particular dishes. I mean, a lot of that goes on, does it not? Oh, absolutely. And these, these processes uh, take a very long time. And for instance, it's very interesting. Uh, Japan uh, got washuku, which is a supposedly very ancient and traditional Japanese meal of rice and three dishes, uh, which is actually a little bit of a myth, you know, as I explore. <laughs> in the Tokyo chapter, they got it inscribed and they were looking at the French application. And they were looking at the same time at the Korean application, which got rejected at that time because Koreans wanted to inscribe their kimchi and they couldn't get it done. So there's just so much politicking, (laughs) so much lobbying, so much money spent on it. So you think, okay, for for, for which purpose is this taking place? You know, nations, countries, you know, want to promote themselves so badly through these dishes. But also there's an interesting uh, point there that I also touch in, in National Dish. Uh, in a lot of these countries, the cuisines, their reputation uh, of the cuisines is kind of going down and declining with the, with, the, with the public. Like the Japanese were turning away from the national meal, from, from rice and three-dish meal, because, you know, they have such an amazing choice of whatever they want to eat. The French, as I discovered, don't really care about the gastronomic meal of the French, which begins with aperitif, you know, and then has five dishes and a dessert. Like, who eats like this anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you know, these, these designations, these inclusions into UNESCO list is to promote the image abroad, but it's also to bolster the popularity and kind of what I call patriotic consumption uh, at home. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So someone benefits, you know, UNESCO meant well, but it's sort of got hijacked by yeah. different state players. Well, we don't have to look abroad to even feel that. And we're, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back from a short break. So stay with us. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers— Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. 
Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. I'm talking with um, Anya von Bremsen about her new book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home from Penguin Press. And Anya, uh, how much has, well, we talked a little bit about globalization, about how much globalization has affected the idea of a national dish, made it stronger or weaker is one of the questions your publisher puts forth. Uh, I said we didn't have to look further than our own borders to to see some of these um, let me see conflicts, and that is that you know we've become we've become very globalized, we're very cosmopolitan in our eating, and yet as you point out uh, in your book that never before have we become more essentialist or or like the locavore movement and and particularist so. You know, we sort of, we're we're very particular about what we eat and that it be local, that it becomes that it come you know from the region, and yet you know, like where you live in Jackson Heights in New York, you can get every I don't know how many countries are represented there. We have 168 languages. 168 languages and their foods as well, I'm sure. So so we're we're more comfortable, you know, quickly going across the street and grabbing a you know a, a souvlaki or a sushi roll or something, and yet we're talking about you know, indigenous ingredients that are you know, local to our farm and our neighborhood. That's and that's kind of a extent of what goes on in 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 the more global sense in the world. Uh, Absolutely, tell, and yeah. I I think it's not either or. Mm-hmm. Either we're globalized or we're local. As as I argue, you know, there the global and the local they nourish each other because as we lose our sense of identity and you know in the world of you know hyphenated cuisines and hyphenated uh, identities and personas and all this travel you know it's almost a natural instinct to seek some kind of protective mechanism that will reconnect us to a deep sense of place whether it's our own roots or other people's roots and other people's cuisines uh, and again that's where a lot of marketing comes in you know, what is authentic, right? Oh, Authenticity, yes. as, as I'm using the book, is such a monster marketing tool. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a word that I, I, I don't like to have come up whenever I'm, you know, discussing any kind of uh, other nation's cuisines. No, it's, it's, it's almost politically incorrect at this point because mm-hmm. it's about projecting our own essentialism right. in regards to other cultures. As I said uh, in other interviews, like, oh, we want to go to Puerto Rico and we want to see the mom and pop, you know, place where people dance salsa and eat mofongo, which exists and they're wonderful and we need to seek them out. But also we kind of don't want to see people, the same people going to a McDonald's or having a Caesar salad somewhere or, you know, something more upmarket because it kind of violates our notion of what uh, another country's culture, authentic culture should be. But it's, it's, it's not just on a personal level that we're seeking the connection with the local. Again, it's on the institutional level starting in the 90s. Um, when globalization became rampant and with the rise of neoliberal economies where, you know, everything was about business and commerce. And um, there started to be this kind of protective mechanisms and organizations. Remember, slow food, right, Right. Right. in the 90s to, you know, to protect the supposed Italianness. Uh, They were ransacking McDonald's in in France, you know, the famous farmer. Uh, So, like, the, the more corporate food 
got into the world, the more, you know, different countries set up all this, you know, the associations of, you know, Verace Pizza Napoletana, you know, the real pesto, the real casule. So God forbid it becomes globalized and someone steals it, right? Mm, right, indeed. Well, do you um, quote somebody, oh, was it? Oh, the Polish um, philosopher Bauman. And I love the term that he applies to kind of the age that, that this postmodern globalized condition, and he calls it liquid modernity. Yeah, I love that quote as well. That is wonderful about, you know, the fact that, you know, we're, we are in this postmodern globalized condition of not really committing to any single, you said the hyphenated, you know, everything, um, on a single identity or a single place. And yet, and yet, as you say, yes, we're, yet we're looking for some connection, some, some, something special to, that we will hold on to, that will identify us. Um, in that, um, you have talked often about um, location or names and how it affects the foods and their taste. Um, and you've talked about kebabs, particularly. Um, this this has an effect on people where the food tastes different in the locale that they're in, even though it may be the same food under a different name in a different place. Can you address that a little bit? Yes, I talk about it in a section in Istanbul where I, uh, the, by the way, the whole premise of the Istanbul chapter is to go and look for the roots of all these cuisines of the multicultural Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. uh, Jewish, Armenian, Greek, uh, which have now disappeared but were part of the texture. So I talked to a Jewish, uh, to a Jewish journalist, uh, a Sephardic Jewish journalist, who made a documentary film about Ladino, the uh, Judeo-Spanish language of, of uh, Sephardic Jews, which is disappearing. And we're discussing how, with the language, a cuisine is disappearing. And uh, I just realized how subjective and important language is to the sense of home and identity and preserving uh, traditions and dishes. Right. And I, I just suddenly think to myself that, uh, wow, you know, to me, a kebab in Turkish has one connotation and like internally tastes differently than a Russian word, which is shashlik, which kind of conjures up for me Armenia and Georgia and all these other places. And you have, you know, again, these borders that didn't exist before in the region we call now the Middle East. So they would have Arabic names, for dishes and Turkish names for dishes, and uh, people people would think that uh, they taste different just because of that. And you know, advertisers spend millions of dollars coming up with catchy names of different soft drinks and and snacks, right? Mm-hmm. So language language is really for me crucial to to taste identity, the sense of home. Hmm. And then we go back to pizza again, and. Japanese pizza toast. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> talking about globalization and the <laughs> Japanese people are arguing with me in Japan that Japanese pizza toast is purely Japanese and is the same Japanese-ness as washuko, as this traditional cuisine, which is, you know, it, this is how they feel and this is their right. And I approach this book as a journalist. I, um, even though it's at times the narrative is very personal, I, I was there to listen. And whatever people said about their cuisine is valid and important, and and uh, I was just recording it. Mm. Well, I have to say that you 
you did such an amazing job uh, talking to people and making connections with uh, not just the current food writers or food historians or you know culturists, but people in the street, people who do the or people who make the food, or even in the you know the the, the brothels who are making yeah. the the pasta. We're the former um, sex workers in the right. <laughs> um, I mean, you really made an effort to reach out to so many different people and, and really talk to them and find out their their true feelings and then and also how they make the food. And I think that's that's remarkable. It wasn't you didn't just come in and do a survey of the foods. And of course, that wouldn't be like you at all. Anya, I didn't expect <laughs> that, but <laughs> that you really wrote a very personal um, a personal essay. You did a personal uh, investigation. What were you personally looking for? I think I was looking for more clear-cut answers about how dishes came to be and what they represent commercially and in terms of kind of nationalistic jingoism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think especially as Americans, we, we, we often look for clear answers, you know, that, that there's something, uh, the trait of this country uh, doesn't like ambiguity. And what, what I discovered was so much more fascinating and complex and something that doesn't always have answers uh, or, you know, kind of feel good solutions, like as I demonstrate in my chapter about Borsch, it sort of left it open-ended. Um, but I was, I was really looking for people's opinions uh, about how they feel about their nationhood and their identity as expressed in their food. And I think I was very lucky to just meet some fascinating characters, so articulate, uh, so helpful. It's it's just been an absolute sort of uh, love fest in terms of just meeting meeting incredible people. Well, you, you, sir, characters, yes, indeed, for sure. <laughs> but uh, I also uh, love how, as, as I spoke to you earlier on, how you just wove in the voices of of the different um, food historians, and that you know brought clarity to some common day misconceptions and um right through every chapter someone different from the, that wrote about or studied that particular um, cuisine let's go back and touch a little bit on a couple of the other uh, we talked about ramen but it wasn't just ramen that made the uh, your list but it was also rice that rice was so important um, a national dish now how could just a grain be a national dish i mean grain has figured big in a lot of other ways um, mm. as, as far as the political end of things. But talk to me a little bit about rice. <clears throat> well, the term, the Japanese term for rice, cooked rice, is gohan, and is basically the equivalent of the word meal. And the national meal of Japan, the one that they elevated to the national meal and got the UNESCO status for washuko, is rice plus side dishes, usually three side dishes, plus mm -hmm. miso soup, right? This is like the quintessential Japanese meal. You eat it for breakfast. Uh, and rice comes with, you know, it's obviously part of sushi as well, but it comes, uh, it comes as part of a set meal. And the Japanese really invest rice with almost mystical uh, aura. Uh, that is, it's a representation of Japanese self, um, that it, uh, you know, 
during World War Two, it, it kind of had an uglier connotation of like representing Japanese purity and, and whiteness, hmm. believe it or not. And um, so it's got this like you know very hollowed, almost almost kind of sacred significance in Japanese culture. But as I discover, first of all, white rice was not something that people ate. Uh, on everyday basis, it was rich people's food, like white bread was, and white sugar, everything refined, uh, was not really accessible to people. And uh, also that the rice consumption is falling pretty dramatically, and uh, the Japanese authorities are extremely concerned about it. The same is happening in Korea, all over Asia, again, as pallets. And tastes get globalized, people are turning away from their so-called mandated national meals. So that was a very interesting paradox. And I talked to a rice distributor who works with all these farmers, and uh, he's just saying the the craft will die with this generation of farmers because they have no incentive. Incentives, it's it's extremely subsidized. Um, And even sushi masters, as he discovered, weren't interested in getting special special varieties of rice. They talked about vinegar, they talked about the shari, you know, the bowl uh, shaping technique, but they he had to work really hard to convince them that rice itself was so important. So it's it's paradoxical and like super interesting to oh, see yeah. how these sort of nationalized sacred meals really play out in 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 the real world. Right. Um, you took some cooking lessons while you were in Oaxaca. Not only did you take cooking lessons, but you cooked the mole for your own wedding celebration. Did you <laughs> I thought um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yes, I mean, all of these, all of these chapters, you know, they end up, you know, with some kind of meal that is uh, fun and symbolic and very often unexpected. Uh, for instance, in Seville, where I write about tapas, I land there for Semana Santa, the Holy Week. Uh, for Easter, and it turns out to be its own just absolutely engrossing and fascinating adventure. And in Oaxaca, I'm there to learn about mole, how it represents the duality of Mexican identity, which they call mestizaje, which is this fusion identity of uh, Spanish roots and, and indigenous, I mean, Spanish influences and indigenous roots. And I fall in with this wonderful cook, you know, called Olga Cabrera, and she teaches me tortillas. There's a chapter is also about tortillas, and we make mole together. And then, just by absolute fluke, we go to a mezcal, uh, to a mezcal palenque, where this you know mezcalero, Zapotec man, who is also a shaman, looks at me and my partner of thirty years and says, "Oh, how long have you been together?" We're like, "Well, I mean, thirty years." And he said, "And you guys, you know?" Oh, he says, "How long have you been married?" And we're like, oh, we're not married. And he just looks at us and said, well, you know, it's about time you got married and I can marry you. So we look at each other and say, okay, sure. So the the chapter ends in this like really, you know, unexpected and slightly comical scene of uh, us, you know, not super young people (laughs) uh, exchanging vows at the Zapotec ceremony, which was really incredibly beautiful. Oh, that's great. Blame it on the mezcal, right? Yes, always, <laughs> always blame it on the mezcal. Right, right. Well, you said in Istanbul you were searching for the roots of so many of, of the the lost cuisines, the lost cultures, um, and the dish that that became the, the nation, the national dish that, and that is used is represented by in the book is mese. So, tell them, let's talk about that. I mean that that can be a little bit of everything from anywhere 
exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, meze is. Uh, no, I wouldn't even say it's a national meal. It's a meal that's emblematic to Istanbul, and Istanbul, mm-hmm. as a former seat, former capital of the Ottoman Empire, had like very deep significance. And uh, the interesting thing about Istanbul meze is how they represent this former multiculturalism of the Ottoman Empire. So you have a Circassian dish, you know, from the Caucasus, because supposedly the Circassian ladies were very prized at the harem, you know, just like a slightly sexist tale, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were very good cook. You know, you have Albanian liver, uh, which was prepared by Albanian butchers, which is fried liver uh, with onion. You had um, different Greek dishes, Armenian, an Armenian dish called topik, uh, which is a kind of a chickpea pate with caramelized onions. Uh, so I wanted to see how all this, you know, how the meze tray of Istanbul, it's called Chilingir Sofra, how it represents and ties together the different strands of the multicultural Ottoman past and what happened to these minorities. So I go to interview Jewish people, Greek people, uh, an Armenian lady, and, you know, some of the stories become very uh, poignant, uh, and they're about erasures and losses as much as they are about uh, just you know, sitting together and having good food. And that's the power of food. And that's the power of, of doing this kind of research. It always leads you in this just absolutely fascinating and unexpected directions. Right. And that is the last part of the, the title, finding the, the meanings in search of the meaning of home. And you know, what is the first thing somebody longs for when they're away from home for a long time? It's their favorite dish from the country they come from. And these, uh, these I would imagine, are, are tastes that are hard to pin that down anymore in this age of globalization. But I suppose it would be something that your mother makes. For you, we know it's borscht because you your mother makes a mean borscht, we hear. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, again, it's kind of, it was, the chapter is about the comforts of home. Mm-hmm. But it was more, even more about the discomforts of home because yeah. what if your home is a genocidal terrorist state? Right. So again, it just shows how food uh, is a way of talking about so many things uh, that are complex and fascinating and really just kind of eye-opening uh, in terms of being windows into history, politics, uh, identity, nostalgia, and just so much more. Well, you certainly have brought it all together in this book, and it's just, it's a wonderful read, and it, and anyone who's interested in food or politics or any of the above and, and national uh, uh, characters, international characters, it's, I recommend it highly. Again, it, the book is National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home by Anya von Bremsen. And Anya, and it's brought to us by Penguin Press here in America. And I just, I thank you so much and don't wait so long next time for the next big book. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try. Linda, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting to you as always. Yeah, it's great. Okay, thank you. And thank you all for listening. Once again, this has been A Taste of the Past and it's brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. And we are a listener supported network. So please visit the website at heritageradionetwork.org and support us. Keep us on the, we can't say on the air, but on the streaming waves. Thanks so much. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. 